Yippee-ki-yay, movie fans. We're back with Film Frontier. I'm Felicity. And I'm Clarence. And today we're going to talk about a very special film that the company Tricoast Entertainment actually sent to us and let us see and connect us with uh, the filmmaker, who you'll hear from later. That film is Tombstone Rashomon, which was a movie we had heard about. It's been kind of long in the making. Uh, so this movie, Tombstone Rashomon, is about a time-traveling crew that arrives in Tombstone to film the gunfight, but they realize they're a day late. They proceed to interview various personalities about their perspectives on the incident, including Colonel Hafford, Kate, Johnny Behan, Ike Clanton, Doc Holliday, and Wyatt Earp. I swear that the interview I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. My name is Wyatt Earp. My present profession is saloon keeper. I'm not gonna fight you, Ike. Why not? Because there's no money in it. They're all in there on Fremont Street, right now. My name is John Henry Holiday. Dentist, etc. The cowboys hated us because we hunted them. Where are you going? Down the street, Let's make a fight. You're not gonna leave me out, are you? You're crazy if you do! My name is Kate Haroni, originally from Pest in Hungary. Doc Holliday was my wife and business partner for several years. Throw up your hands, boys. We're here for your guns. My name is Joseph I. Clinton. My occupation is stock raising, cattle dealer. If I had my six shooter right now, I'd make a fight with all of you. I'm John Behan. I'm the sheriff of Cochise County. Here they come! Stay here! Stay back! I want no fighting! I have killed several individuals out of necessity. I think the tagline for this movie was the most unusual gunfight movie ever made. The The film is available uh, on DVD now. You can uh, Google it and find it at many online retailers. And then streaming in July, is Correct. that right? Correct, yep. So... Knowing that, let's uh, get into it. Obviously, as this uh, title implies, it's about both the OK Corral and a reference to Kurosawa's 1950 film, Rashomon, which put Kurosawa on the map, in, in internationally anyways. And as a storytelling device used in many different properties yes. ever since of seeing these different perspectives of one story. Right. The Kurosawa film deals with a murder told from the perspective of five different people, and Rashomon's become a shorthand term for you know, various versions of the truth, mm -hmm. which this film addresses. Alex Cox, the filmmaker, uh, born in Liverpool, studied there, came to the U.S., studied at UCLA, got his film degree there. While at UCLA, he wrote the screenplay for what would become his first film, Repo Man, starring Emilio Estevez and Harry Dean Stanton. He got it to Michael Nesmith of The Monkees, who agreed to produce it and got Universal to back it. Of all people, Mike Nesmith of The Monkees. <laughs> so Universal uh, releases it, but there was a change in the studio management and they kind of just gave it a limited release. They weren't really behind it. And so it didn't do well initially, but became a very popular, highly regarded cult film over the years. Cult films of which uh, Alex Cox <laughs> has kind of become an expert. Yes. He hosted the show in Britain, Movie Drome. Right. On BBC Two, we begin a new weekly series called... Movie Drome. Uh, where he introduced various cult films every week. My name is Alex Cox, and welcome to the Movie Drome, a season of cult films. What is a cult film? 
cult film is one which has a passionate following but does not appeal to everybody. James Bond movies are not cult films, but chainsaw movies are. Just because a movie is a cult movie does not automatically guarantee quality. Some cult movies are very bad, others are very, very good. Some make an awful lot of money at the box office, others make no money at all. Some are considered quality films, others are exploitation. One thing they do have in common is that they're all genre films. That's to say a French word meaning the type or category of film in question, for example, gangster films or westerns. Cult films also have a tendency to slosh over from one genre into another so that a science fiction film might become a detective movie or vice versa. They're also generally cheaply made. They share common themes as well, themes which I would suggest are the common themes of all drama, love, murder, and greed. That show has sort of created a lot of present-day British filmmakers. It sort of raised them in a way and was their film education. Yeah. So you might hear about that show through a lot of current filmmakers. Right, and you can find many, many of his uh, intros on YouTube if you're interested and just go down a rabbit hole uh, watching those. I know I've done that many times. For sure. So Cox, he makes Repo Man. Um, Eventually it catches on. It was critically a success, if not commercially originally, but partially due to, it kind of caught on partially due to uh, the soundtrack, which features a lot of punk bands from L.A., and, um, Iggy Pop Iggy did the Pop. theme song. Right. He followed up that with Sid and Nancy, another film about uh, the punk scene, about Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols and his girlfriend Nancy Spungen and their death and, and the story. And that was um, both commercially and uh, critically acclaimed for, for Cox. And he discovered uh, Gary Oldman right, right. through making that. And I think I read that uh, another candidate for Sid was Daniel Day-Lewis. So he could have also discovered DDL. <laughs> so after the success of uh, Sid and Nancy, he went to Almeria, Spain to shoot a spoof, a spaghetti western spoof called Straight to Hell. And it featured uh, a lot of who's who in the music industry. Courtney Love, Joe Strummer from The Clash, Elvis Costello. Also featured uh, Jim Jarmusch and Dennis Hopper, among many others. Um, and like I said, shot in Almeria, where the Spaghetti Westerns were shot, of which Cox is a huge fan. So I'm sure that was a, a thrill for him. Yeah, he's written extensively on the Spaghetti Western, on film in general. Right. As well as uh, a book all about the British show The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. And a historical book about JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald. And I mean, he even writes on his blog about the artist Bruegel. So his interests are expansive, <laughs> right. and he is a very intelligent man that you, I think you see in a lot of his films. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you're interested in spaghetti westerns, his book, 10,000 Ways to Die, A Director's Perspective on the Spaghetti Western, is, is a good read. So check that out. Mm-hmm. So Alex Cox uh, then decides to make a movie on William Walker, who was an American mercenary uh, involved in Nicaragua in the late 1800s. He led an expedition to overthrow the government and kind of set himself up as a dictator until he was eventually ousted and and killed in Honduras. Cox was interested in Nicaraguan politics at the time and the Mm -hmm. battle between the Sandinistas and the Contras and wanted to make a film that addressed that in American intervention uh, that was going on at the time. Um, And this particular story of Walker is a fascinating look at history. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah, it was crazy. His film version is very, features a lot of very anachronistic uh, things in it, intentionally so. It's it's commenting on on the American involvement. That also runs through other Alex Cox works, including uh, Tombstone Rashomon. There's a lot of anachronistic elements dropped in that we can can talk about later. Yeah, you'll see a little bit of it in Tombstone Rashomon. Uh, um, And Walker 
Walker featured Ed Harris in the lead, screenplay by Rudy Wurlitzer, who had written uh, the script to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid for Sam Peckinpah, as well as Tulane Blacktop for Monty Hellman, famously. Rudy Wurlitzer, who's actually sort of attached to this film, Tombstone Rashomon, in a way, Alex credits him with the idea to introduce the sci-fi element to this movie. Originally, Alex was just going to make it a traditional Western, and when they were doing the funding for this movie, Warlitzer was credited as the writer, but at some point along the way, Alex just became the the sole writer and the screenplay is uh, credited solely to him. But interesting that he maintained that idea from Warlitzer of yeah. the time traveling. Yeah, I had no idea Warlitzer was involved in this Yeah, movie. originally it was uh, the perspective of time traveling women historians from the future. Another sort of Western connection, though, with Warlitzer is in the 80s, he wrote a screenplay called Zebulon, which was an acid Western about a fur trapper who sort of wanders in limbo between the dead and the living world. Um, originally Hal Ashby wanted to direct it, but they didn't really get along too well. Uh, then Alex Cox actually jumped on board and uh, had a verbal commitment from Richard Gere, but he eventually dropped out and funding dropped out along with him. Jim Jarmusch then read the screenplay and started talking to Wurlitzer about it, and they sort of amicably split after a difference of opinion. But then in 1995, Jarmusch came out with the film Dead Man, mm-hmm. which has a number of similarities right. to the Zebulon script, <laughs> but no credit for Wurlitzer. Yeah. And I'm sure Rudy was not happy about that. Alex told Wurlitzer that he should have sued, but he didn't. Although the script continued to go around, and a lot of people said it was one of the best screenplays they ever read, since it was so similar to Dead Man, which had come out, the future of it being a film was unlikely, so right. he ended up adapting it into his novel, The Drop Edge of Yonder, in 2008. I've read that, actually. A good, it's an excellent book. I can't really see Richard Gere in the lead, but... Uh... <laughs> But nevertheless, uh, definitely worth looking up. Has Richard done a Western? I don't think so. Although Leone had him and Mickey Rourke in mind for a a Western uh, in the 80s that he was toying with. Together? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, a Civil War era Western, yeah, that never, Mm. obviously never came about. So yeah, back to Walker. The film, uh, Universal hated it. They thought it was too violent, too political. They barely gave it any release, so it flopped. And and that kind of derailed uh, Alex Cox's career in mainstream Hollywood. I, I'm, I'm shocked that Universal ever even agreed to make this movie. <laughs> yeah. I think since then, uh, Alex has said that it didn't please the Republicans, it didn't please the Democrats, yeah, and of yeah. course it didn't please the studio, so yeah. sort of left with no one, <laughs> in America at least. Yeah, this is definitely not mainstream filmmaking, yeah. and which I think is sort of Universal's hallmark, you know. After that, Cox wound up in Mexico shooting a film that was financed by Japanese investors uh, called Highway Patrolman. Uh, shot in like a series of long takes. Some of it shot in Durango, Mexico, uh, which is like a location for many late 60s Hollywood westerns and 70s westerns like War Wagon and Major Dundee, that kind of thing. Also interesting that a British filmmaker who got his training in America ends up in Mexico making a movie after making a movie in Nicaragua (laughs) in his, I assume, second language, working with local actors and crew. Right. Interesting that a movie could even be made that yeah. way, much less a good movie, which uh, Highway Patrolman is. So. I guess it's similar to how Spaghetti Westerns were made with totally Italian directors and actors from all over Europe and the United States. And, you know, no yeah. one, you know, it's a lot of people not speaking the same language, right. but acting in scenes together. And uh, Cox later uh, was involved in an adaptation of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the Hunter S. Thompson novel. He was uh, hired by Thompson and a producer to produce a script for that. 
they I eventually... think the rights to the novel were going to run out if they didn't have someone write ah. the script to it. So, <laughs> so they, they had to get some, a, a draft in. They had to get something quickly, going. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then Cox fell out with uh, Hunt, with Thompson and the producer and was eventually fired. Um, and then that film was eventually made by Terry Gilliam uh, with Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro. Mm-hmm. And Cox received a co-screenwriting credit for that. Yeah, it, Cox had a few sort of brushes with other popular media that didn't end up happening. I think he turned down directing uh, The Three Amigos, instead directing Straight to Hell. Mm-hmm. He, I think, was one of the first people to pitch Mars Attacks, uh, which would later become the um, Tim, Tim Burton. Burton film in 1985. Uh uh, he also co-wrote a Doctor Strange screenplay with Stan Lee himself uh, in 1989 <laughs> that would have been very different than the one that Marvel eventually made, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, he joins Alain René as another uh, filmmaker to write a script with Stan Lee. So yeah. that's that's good company. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've heard Alex Cox since sort of look down on the Marvel films. So. Yeah, well, I, I can't imagine they would be as homogenized as, as the what we eventually got, you know, what, what he would have come up yeah. with. And really the late 80s... Uh, Really, the superhero boom had not taken it had not off happened yet. yet. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of dead at that point. I think mm-hmm. after the last Batman movie, mm-hmm. so yeah. maybe he was even looking at it as more of like a cult film Pro- that the yeah. comic book nerds would yeah. love. And I can see Doctor Strange appealing to him, especially like the late '60s version yeah. from Steve Ditko. But yeah. Anyway, he uh, has then moved into like low budget filmmaking. Um, since then, even like micro budget. Micro budget. Yeah. yeah. He made a film called uh, Searchers 2.0 mm-hmm. about uh, it's a road movie about two actors on their way to Monument Valley for a screening of a film they were in where they expect to exact revenge on this uh, tyrannical screenwriter who tormented them as children. And it's uh, two aging actors on the way discussing westerns and revenge movies and mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson. Mm-hmm. and, and uh, it's... But they're almost like your friends or something in that yeah. they don't know what they're talking right. about. They constantly <laughs> get things wrong. Yeah, always getting details wrong. Yeah. Um, and it is sort of a tribute to the John Ford, John Wayne, The Searchers, but also nothing at all right. like it. I mean, it's not a sequel. It's not a remake. None of that. Right. But it does take place in Monument Valley, and they do make all these Western they reference references. It and, and, yes, yeah. They even go to the, the cabin from She Wore Yellow Ribbon yeah. and talk about that. Goulding's Lodge Goulding's is highly Lodge. featured. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to Goulding's Lodge. Yes. If you go to Monument Valley, that's the place to stay. <laughs> He's revisited Repo Man uh, in the waning years in a in a companion film called uh, Repo Chick, which I think has had some rights issues. Yeah. It is not possible to compete with a huge multinational corporation like Universal, which is owned by General Electric, a big military contractor in the United States owns Universal. So um, if when Universal decide to sue me to stop me making Repo Chick. Maybe I can struggle, maybe I can make the film anyway, but then they can prevent the film being shown. You know, they can lean on film festivals. They can lean on salespeople. They can make sure that that film does not get seen. Distribution is controlled by these huge corporations, you know, and and one individual cannot, or even a group of individuals working creatively together, you know, it's a kind of a fantasy to believe that we can he wrote a sequel to Repo Man called Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday, which was eventually adapted as a graphic novel. And maybe we'll see more Repo Man from him in the future. Yeah. His directorial influences, Louis Bunuel, Kurosawa, Sergio Leone, Sergio Corbucci, John Ford, uh, Sam Peckinpah, Giulio Kesti, who uh, 
famously directed the spaghetti western Django Shoot If You Live Kill, which is a crazy, bizarre spaghetti western. Check it out if you haven't seen it. I mean, many of these directors we've either already covered on the podcast or definitely We're about will. To, yeah. I will say one thing about Alex Cox that I think pervades his career is he is pragmatic he will figure out how to get the movie made yes yeah. whether it's repo man getting the the monkeys to sign on <laughs> getting universal to produce it somehow yeah. going to mexico south america wherever to make a movie what like once he's blacklisted from hollywood to now making micro budget features whatever it takes to get his movies made i think he will do it yes and that is an honorable feature. <laughs> I would love to see more filmmakers doing that because right. it is so hard to get movies made, especially in the Hollywood system. Now there is this, this seamless link between production by the studios, distribution and exhibition. That in, in the United States, the studios completely control exhibition in the cinemas as well. And really the, 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 the studios have won, you know. I mean, independent filmmakers, we are beaten, you know. We are just finished. I mean, more power to him for continuing to make films, even if they're not major Hollywood right. films. I mean, and, and because that comes with a whole other thing, especially oh, yeah. nowadays. Um, but you got to admire the guy. I mean, right out of the bat, he has a universal movie mm-hmm. with Emilio Estevez, Harry Dean Stanton. I mean, that's pretty impressive. You got to, you know, admire that. And also he cast uh, Von Adam McGee in that movie, uh, who was in The mm-hmm. Great Silence, which is one of his favorite films. So that's, yeah. you know, it's nice to see that. And I think at no point in his career, even when he was working for Universal, was he trying to please the higher-ups. No. What I also have realized is that the studios are really like characters in a spaghetti western. I mean, they're really simple, evil characters, you know, with power and with a great desire for revenge. He was making He was films. making the movies he wanted to make, and now, I mean, he doesn't have anybody he has to please right. except maybe the, <laughs> the, the fans. Yeah. Um, who want to see more Alex Cox films. Yeah, he's definitely true to himself. I never would have been able to make the films that I really wanted to make within the Hollywood system because my mind works differently, my thoughts are different. Um, I really did have to pursue the independent way because that was the only possible way. And I think that's interesting to lead us into this film, seeing this punk sensibility combined with his love of the Western, love of the history, that sort of leads us to questioning what do we really know Mm -hmm. about this history and why aren't we asking more questions about it? This story, you know, the Wyatt Earp story from the Stuart and Lake book, Frontier Marshall, propagating the myth of Wyatt Earp as this major hero to you know, finally, in the late 60s and into the 70s and in the 90s, we finally get more of shades of gray of the herbs. They're not just mm-hmm. straight arrow heroes. And, and like, there's still books being written today yeah. dealing with this story. It's still a popular subject as more information comes out and more truth or whatever, you know. You, we, I mean, I think that's because no one really knows exactly. what happens, it's, what happened or who's at, to right. blame. There's so many ways you could take the story, yeah. I mean, that's what uh, Alex said, was that he read this uh, Stuart and Lake book, Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshall, when he was a kid. And it was a very heroic portrayal of Earp and Holiday, uh, and very entertaining for young boys to read. So as Alex said, that inspired me, and over the years I saw the various films, like My Darling Clementine, which is a work of great beauty, a visually marvelous film with no historical accuracy to speak of. <laughs> right. Um, I saw the other movies, Gunfight at the OK Corral, and Tombstone, and Doc, and I just thought... This is a really great story. I never lost my interest in it. So now in my declining years, I thought, well, let's give it a go. And he doesn't really make anyone the bad guy in this. Mm-hmm. You get various versions of what may have happened, what other people perceived to have happened. So it's, you know, it's not revisionism, you know, like Doc 
like you mm-hmm. mentioned, makes Wyatt Earp just look awful. But it's neither. It's not that. It's not. It's not building up and be a hero either. So. Yeah, there's no consensus at the end of not the film. No, you make your own decisions. Yeah, yeah. you don't let the man tell you. <laughs> and you see who's in trouble. You see one scene one way, and then you see it another mm-hmm. way. So you're like, well, what did happen? Right. You know, obviously we don't know. We're trying to be historically accurate in each case in terms of the event. I mean, the idea of Rashomon is that uh, the Kurosawa film is that it tells one story from several different perspectives. And because there's such a divergence of opinion about the gunfight outside the OK Corral, you know, who was in the right, who was in the wrong, it lends itself to that kind of treatment. And probably, you know, it will probably offend people because of that, you know, because it isn't, it isn't just one straight version. It isn't like My Darling Clementine or Tombstone very in favor of Wyatt Earp. And it isn't like Doc, you know, which is the Stacey Keach movie, which is very critical of Wyatt Earp. So it kind of falls in all of that space. So it probably will please nobody. Uh, so the way this movie came about, it was uh, Indiegogo funded in 2015, where they raised over $31,000. The producers of the 2016 movie Snowden then matched those funds raised so that Cox could complete the movie. Um, he'd previously used this, this sort of crowdfunding on his 2014 film Bill the Galactic Hero, which he made with students at the University of Colorado at Boulder, where he was teaching film production at the time. Mm. And this film, he used students from the University of Arizona, correct? Correct. Uh, students from the University of Arizona, as well as recent grads from University from of Colorado, yeah. It's definitely a, a low-budget film. Yeah. But it, it works well. Yeah. I, you know, it, it overcomes its budgetary limitations, right. I think. And, I mean, it is... An amateur crew, but if somebody told me it was a student film, I, it would be the best student film I've oh, ever yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, granted, it's directed by Alex Cox, who's a pro. <laughs> right. Hi, I'm Alex Cox, I'm the film director. I made Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, Walker, Straight to Hell, El Patriero, and some other films you may have seen. Now, I'm raising funds on Indiegogo for an extraordinary film about the gunfight at the OK Corral. Why, you ask, make another film about the gunfight at the OK Corral when there have been a number? And I think the answer is, all of these films have been from the point of view of one heroic individual against some bad guys, whether it was Wyatt Earp or Doc Holliday. But in fact, truth, as we know, is more complex than just one good person and a bunch of baddies. And so my attempt with this project is to get together with Phil Tippett, Rudy Wurlitzer, and other skilled collaborators and make not one, but five versions of the story of the gunfight at the OK Corral in the style of the great film by Akira Kurosawa. So with your help, our movie will be Tombstone Rashomon. Uh, to prepare, Cox uh, made a detailed scale model of the tombstone streets oh. that he uses to, <laughs> to sort to of uh, plan his shots. Block out the action, yeah. yeah. And then they ended up um, shooting in 2016 at, at Old Tucson. If you've seen a Western, you've seen Old Tucson Studios. You know, it's been used a million times. Um, it's mostly like a tourist attraction now. Mm-hmm. Movies like Rio Bravo, Gunfight at the OK Corral, uh, just... Winchester 73, just dozens of movies have shot there. I think they even shot A Couple Days of Walker there. Yeah. Uh, High Chaparral shot there, mm-hmm. a TV show. I mean, just dozens is dozens and dozens of yeah. movies have shot there. It's very recognizable. But it's one of the few remaining Western sets, I right. would say, that right. exists now. Well, I first came to Tucson, and I first came to old Tucson, uh, when we were shooting Walker in 1987. And we did two days of additional material there with Peter Boyle, Ed Harris, Marty Matlin, um, on the railroad train. And so 
it seemed to me like the perfect location to shoot the movie. And even though I scouted other places to see if there was a sufficiently large and diverse Western set to shoot in, um, I don't think there's one in the United States. If you were gonna shoot in the US and you're shooting a Western in an existing location, this is the place to come and shoot. Although it was local and even student filmmakers doing a lot of the work on this film, you do have um, Tippett Studios who did the VFX work. There hmm. was Phil Tippett who did like Jurassic Park, Star Wars, a lot of those um, visual effects, as well as a uh, longtime Alex Cox collaborator, um, Dan Wool did the music. Mm -hmm. But even there, you got a title song from the Tucson band XIXA. My man, spirit as a woman. So, I, I think this production really goes to show uh, the value of using local talent and right. and how that can raise funds for the local community and. Uh, bring attention to the arts and and a cast of local actors, I believe. Correct. As well. Yeah. Well, I think all um, or most from the Arizona, Colorado area. Right. Yeah. The cast mostly. I mean, unknowns. Right. You're not going to recognize any names, I'm sure. Yeah, but professional working actors. Yeah. I mean, not. Yeah. No, it's not like uh, just people <laughs> off the street. It's not like your friends. No. Um, These are people who know what they're doing. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the actor who played Doc, uh, Eric Schumacher, he had previously played Wyatt Earp in an episode of the show Legends and Lies. So oh. he's played both sides of the coin. <laughs> I just thought that was kind of interesting. He has a perspective on both. Yeah. A number of the actors had a real resemblance to the actual people. Did yeah. you? Yeah. I thought uh, the, the actor that played Doc uh, actually looked like him. Yeah. 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 And, and Earp is well cast. Mm -hmm. um, Adam Newberry, I believe. Is mm. his, yeah. Which, which is remarkable that you could find these people that not only are in the area can do a good job yeah and look like the people right to a degree you know they don't i mean they don't even do that in hollywood they look uh authentic i think mm -hmm. yeah there's no real like bad performer in the movie no. uh, everybody does a stand-up job right which is a tribute to both the acting and the directing. Uh, I guess let's get into the movie a little mm -hmm. bit like you said the premise is if it was like a film crew time traveling mm -hmm. and, and interviewing each of the participants, not each of the participants, but several major participants mm -hmm. of the event. You're like, it just happened. So we see Johnny Behan, who was like the town sheriff, uh, Wyatt, Doc, Ike Clanton, and Kate Elder, who was uh, Doc Holliday's paramour, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and Colonel Hafford, uh, who's yes, the saloon who, owner. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, the Birdman of Tucson, right. I think they call yes. him. Yeah. yeah, so you get a different perspective from each of those. You know, Kurosawa's film, the inspiration for this. It's weird, like... Japanese film and the Western, mm -hmm. its relationship, you know, the from Ford inspiring Kurosawa and then Kurosawa's film leading to direct remakes for like The Magnificent Seven, Fistful of Dollars. Uh, Rashomon has even been remade as The Outrage, a Paul Newman Western. Right. I think there's like a, a shared cultural interest that, that sort of extends beyond these like language yeah. barriers yeah. that many of us are interested in seeing the same type of story. Right. And the same type of characters. And it's just through what cultural lens do we want to view it. Right. And there's, uh, you know, the the samurai, the, the masterless samurai, the ronin, mm -hmm. who were wandering around just from town to town, you know, doing jobs. It's like a cowboy, a gunfighter right. or whatever. So it's a very similar kind yes. of thing. So. What did you think of these particular characters that Cox chose to highlight? 
Um, it was interesting. I mean, several of them seem obvious in a way. Of course, you want Wyatt and you want Doc mm-hmm. and, and Johnny Behan, who is sort of a character you don't really see in ERP adaptations until maybe uh, Hour of the Gun and then in Tombstone and, mm-hmm. and Costner's Wyatt Earp. Uh, he was the town marshal and he sort of was, he's always portrayed as being allied with uh, the Clantons. Mm-hmm. Um, and this film sort of takes it a different direction and more, you know, makes makes him a little... Uh, more ambiguous mm-hmm. is like what what are his allegiances right. and and yeah I think that was interesting because he was he was trying to stop the Earps from going down to the mm-hmm. to the corral to confront the cowboys and there are a lot of conflicting reports about he told them they were unarmed what, you know yeah could it have been avoided right in hindsight right and the, and the film goes into that yeah yeah and was he just kind of like money grabbing power grabbing right was was everybody kind of money grabbing yeah. power grabbing yeah. yeah. I mean, the herbs famously were out to strike it rich, and they were. Yeah. That's why they were in Tombstone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, Kate Elder, I think, was an interesting choice because she wasn't a participant. Right. You know, it was, it was clearly her her viewpoint is skewed to mm-hmm. her allegiance to Doc. I don't know what did you think? I think it was interesting to Kate, tell Kate's story. For me, that was one of the more distracting parts of the movie. In sort of the the little quirky elements of her character, of, yeah. uh, I believe she's Hungarian. Right. right? I think so. The, I mean, the the real Kate was yeah. Hungarian. In this film, she portrayed as not having a complete masterful grasp on the language which was a little bit distracting for me her calling her use uh, of pronouns yeah her use of pronouns was weird she calls everyone she and yeah. her and like when she's like, talking about doc she refers to him as her and and even says like my wife yes yeah doc. it's it all yeah which yeah. i don't know if that's based on something real uh yeah. or just a like a, a touch of humor added or right or what, but it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, never it's, referenced and... It's a bit distracting. It, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's even like a, a sort of shot at pronoun culture today. Perhaps. But for me, it just didn't really work. Yeah, you, you keep... I did anyways. I kept waiting for... I kept thinking there would be an explanation. Yeah. Of someone like, would say, oh, she does this because yeah, or whatever. We keep trying to teach her, but right. she's never caught on. But yeah. it's never addressed in right. any way, yeah. And sort of going down this path of a, a few elements that didn't work for me mm-hmm. in this film. Although I think it's interesting, the time travel element, for me, it wasn't fully explored mm. enough. By sort of laying the groundwork of it, you naturally have questions about how the time travel works, who these people are, and that is just never addressed. It's completely a frame for the story. Right, right. Which I understand, and which I think is an interesting way into a low-budget feature in a way to incorporate some anachronistic elements. Right. It's never questioned like by the the interviewees mm-hmm. or anything and I don't know maybe maybe you shouldn't do that. I don't know, but I mean in a way if you went into that it would be a movie about the time yeah. traveling crew and not about right. the participants of the gunfight. Then you lose what what the point of the movie is, yeah. Yeah, but it, for me it was just kind of caught in a no man's land between mm. those two facets. Yeah. And you do have these anachronistic elements that sort of harken to modern day struggles with police and police-like right. Right. Uh, authority figures. Right. At one point, the Earps and Doc travel to the OK Corral in a uh, police... A modern police modern vehicle. Modern police vehicle, yeah. 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 Which sort of takes you out of it in a good way, actually. Yeah, You kind yeah. of stop and think, but just a few times it didn't quite work for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. 
And there are a few occasions where you'll see in the background like modern buildings, yeah. and and it's clearly intentional, obviously. Right. You know, and uh, and if you want to get into the plot logic of it, I mean, who knows how time travel works? Maybe there's a glitch <laughs> in the system, and elements of the future come start to come to play in the that's past. That's true. And, that's true. That's a good. It, that's a good point. And it's a way to show that without um, using expensive visual effects. Yes. <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of references in the film to both actual historical details such as um the birds in colonel hafford's saloon Mm -hmm. the the art direction there has it pretty uh accurate which you'll see at the end of the film there's a comparison between the set and the the real colonel hafford's saloon right but not only historical references but also references to other portrayals of the gunfight such as um my darling clementine right there's a scene where there's the theater and uh Alex Cox himself is on stage performing uh, Shakespeare from Hamlet and doing the lines that are done by Alan Mowbray in uh, My Darling Clementine. So I'm sure is like a direct reference to that movie. Right. Um, there are other references that feel like they might be nods to Tombstone mm-hmm. and, and other films. So with that, we'll hand it off to the interview we did with Alex. He was nice enough to uh, talk with us the other day. And we'll get a few more answers straight from the filmmaker himself. Right. Hi, Alex. Yes. Hey, this is Felicity and Clarence from Film Frontier. Hi, how are you? Oh, hi. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Cool. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your film with us. So how did the idea first generate for you for Tombstone Rashomon? Well, I'm old enough, you know, that I can still remember, not the gunfight at the OK Corral itself, I'm not that old, but but when I was a kid, I was interested in cowboys and why it was this kind of epic figure grew up with if you were interested in western over the years you know the take on Wyatt Earp has changed not so much in the movies but in terms of the non-fiction writing about the difficulty of the OK Corral there's more of a tendency now to view it as, a, as an instance of extrajudicial killing rather than uh, you know how for this film did you choose which characters to to tell that story through it was really characters whose voice I I was able to get a taste of uh, some of the protagonists in the event were uh, interviewed by a judge called Judge Spicer after the shootout happened. And this, Judge Spicer was very in the arts, it was kind of a process, but it meant that uh, Judge Spicer, whether or not the case and jury. Um, and so a letter testified at that hearing, Clanton testified and Doc Holliday didn't testify because nobody would let him testify because they were afraid he could say anything and he <laughs> blow the whole story so, right. so he but later after they were let free and he went to Colorado he was kidnapped by a bounty hunter who was trying to extradite him back to Arizona wow. um, for the crimes and um, and in, in order to get himself free Doc gave a lot of newspaper interviews in Denver and so we have Doc's voice from newspaper interviews. We have the voices of Wyatt and, uh, and Ike Clanton from the testimony. And we have Kate's voice from a letter that she wrote to her niece many years later. Mm. Mm. So are you taking a lot of like direct quotes from these sources, or yes, yeah, yeah. yes, pretty much everything that I, that, that um, Ike says and. Doc, the letter from Kate's only a page long, so you have to extrapolate a bit, a bit with Kate. 
I see. Mm-hmm. And then Johnny Behan, was he also, uh, did he also testify? Johnny Behan, the sheriff, he also appeared at the Spicer hearing and okay. gave a long piece of testimony in which he talked about trying to reach a non-violent solution to the dispute. Mm. What was the process like for making this film for you? Well, it really depended on two things. It depended on the availability of Old Tucson, the western town. Uh-huh. Right. And and the availability of the sound department because the sound department was a film professor from the University of Arizona and his students. So we had to wait for the semester to end uh, in order to start shooting. Unfortunately, the end of the semester coincided with Old Tucson going on a reduced schedule. Because mm-hmm. Old Tucson is both a western town for movies, but it's also a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. Right. Their biggest their biggest deal is Halloween. They do a, a week-long kind of horror western town <laughs> Halloween, which is hugely popular. Um, but we were fortunate because we could take advantage of both the... Uh, the students going on break so they could work for us and the um, and the and the western town going into the only like opening two or three days which meant that for four days a week we had the entire top let's go ahead and get more into uh, old tucson you you mean you shot the, this film there searchers 2.0 and straight to hell you got to shoot in these other classic western locations what was searchers 2.0 was shot up in monument valley right. in right. arizona and straight to hell, yeah, straight to hell was shot in Spain, where they made the Italian western. Right, right. Was was shooting in these locations just a dream for you, having been a lifelong western fan? Or it's marvelous. I mean, irrespective <laughs> of whether you like cowboy films or not, Monument Valley is worth going to just for its incredible beauty. Right. It's, oh it's yeah. Just one of the most amazing landscapes in the world. Mm-hmm. That I know about, and so even if you don't like cowboy films, it's worth going to Monument Valley just to visit the Navajo Nation and see them. The, the wonders that there are there. Right, For sure. um, yeah. We we visit it and love it. Yeah, it's yeah. so breathtaking. Um, how was it shooting in Almeria? I know you love spaghetti westerns. Was that like a dream come true? We had a great time. We had a great yeah. time, but we were all young, you know. I mean, yeah. we could, like, you know, survive on very little sleep and <laughs> get drunk and work with a hangover and that kind of thing. And it was all, you know, the happy days, you know, the happy days of your before one had to be a little bit more, more, um, strategic in one's uh, approach to filmmaking. Um, back to Tombstone Rashomon, what really inspired you to to make this movie? Like what? Like any other sources, I mean obviously Rashomon right. um, and the the other OK Corral sort of influences, but were, were there any other points of reference for you? Well I really, I thought really that going into it I thought like everybody does that Doc Holliday was the most interesting character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But having done the research I I, I had to. I came around to the to the idea that really Johnny Bean and Kate are the most interesting mm-hmm. characters in the piece. Johnny's quite an extraordinary character because if the history of Johnny Bean in, in the movies, you know, Kate is almost not there at all. She's the pretty girl, right. right? And and Johnny is like always a bad guy, always a, a crony of the Clantons, right? Yet Johnny Bean, his history after he finished up being sheriff of, of Tombstone, which made him quite wealthy, he became the governor of the territorial prison of the territorial prison at Yuma. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was governor of the prison for several years. Then he was given the, the highly honorable position of Chinese exclusion officer for the state of Arizona. Wow. Which was a governmental position to keep the Chinese out of Arizona at all costs, you know. Wow, yeah. Poor wow. Chinese who were already there. Um, but that was like a state thing. 
And then when the U.S. went to war with Spain in Cuba, mm-hmm. Johnny Bean was the teamster for the entire operation. So he provided all the horses. And when Teddy Roosevelt rode up San Juan Hill, he was riding on a horse provided by Johnny Bean. Wow. <laughs> so it's interesting, isn't it, that you think of I mean, whatever, whatever we think now about the, about the, the Spanish-American War or a Chinese exclusion officer, mm-hmm. but Johnny Bean really did spend his life in public service. Right. And right. Wyatt Earp, Wyatt Earp was a bartender and a, and a gold prospector. Right. You had to wear a lot of hats. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they all had a lot of hats. They all, you know, everybody was making their own, making their way in, a, in, in a, what we call the Wild West. In general, like, what do you think it is that connects uh, so many Japanese films to Westerns? I mean, you know, Kurosawa being inspired by Ford and then, and then the American Western borrowing and the Italian Western borrowing from Kurosawa. Here you are referencing Rashomon. Like, what do you think connects the two so much? Well, I think it's really, I mean, I mean, what Kurosawa picked up on, because he loved Westerns, he loved John Ford, mm-hmm. and what he picked up on was that as the kind of the state in Japan kind of collapsed and all the samurai who'd been in the service of powerful houses kind of just got let go. The ronin wandering the country, you know, looking for a job um, with just their long sword and their short sword. Those are the only skills they had. Right. In a way, they're like itinerant gunfighters and gamblers in the Wild West. And mm-hmm. so I think that that analogy, which uh, Kurosawa drew, obviously that got audiences excited and it got filmmakers excited too, because it certainly got Sergio Leone excited because right. he made a, a totally illicit remake of Yujimbo <laughs> called Fistful of Dollars. Yes. Uh, getting back to the, the filmmaking of Tombstone Rashomon, what was the most challenging aspect for you? I, I can imagine just making a, a low-budget period film is difficult. Was there a particular element that, you know, you, you had a challenge with? Yeah, because we, we were shooting two units simultaneously. We were shooting the oh. interviews oh, wow. in one stage while we were shooting the live action, you know, the scenes in the saloon, the scenes on the streets, the gunfight. The, so logistically, we had to work out how, say, what day was Johnny Bean not needed, so that mm. could be his interview day. And so then my, the hardest thing for me was just running back and forth between the two units. Oh, wow. yeah. I, had second unit, I had a second unit director working in the, in the interview stage, and, you know, first and second AD working on the set, you know, but it was still a lot of running back and forth. Wow, that sounds crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot it's of... It's fun, though, because you don't waste time. It's really nice, because a lot of time on, on film sets, they go very, very slowly. Right. Yeah. And it's so much nicer when it goes quickly, you know. And that was also the interesting thing. I've never been on a film where all the actors came to the set word perfect. Mm-hmm. And I asked a couple of them, how come? Do you always do this? And they go, no, but we know we're going to have to go very fast, so we just thought we better be, we better have it. Oh, you know, we weren't. We, we better be off the book because we weren't going to be able to learn our lines on the on, you know, on the day. Right, right. So there's a lot of dialogue as well. I mean, it's a very dialogue heavy film, especially yes. in the interview. Yeah. So, um, so the actors were tremendous in, in terms of that preparation. Over the course of your career, uh, looking kind of in a, in a broader lens, has your approach to either filmmaking or to making or even watching westerns changed? Do you have a new outlook now? Uh, much more. I got much closer to the script than I used to be because when mm. we started out doing like Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, and Straight to Hell, Walker, we kind of like wandered around, you know, and improvised stuff and made new scenes and treated the script as like a kind of, well, it's just a blueprint, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think after I made a Patrolman with a screenplay by Lorenzo O'Brien, I realized, oh man, you know, it's actually enough to be sent for like just 
shooting the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Get the screenplay right, shoot the screenplay. And <laughs> it's easier, you know, it's less trouble. Right. <laughs> as far as Westerns go, like, uh, what was, like, the first Western you watched that really kicked off your fandom and your love for the genre? I mean, I guess I've seen a whole bunch of Hollywood Westerns on TV and stuff, and just, you know, that was just part of, like, growing up as a kid, you know. I think the first Western that I ever that I saw that made me, wow, this is really interesting. It's something I like a lot. Uh, what, for a few dollars more. Okay, yeah. And I, and I think probably that's still the best Italian Western. It's mm. just a wonderful film. With yeah. Great characters and a great structure and a great script. Yeah, so for a few dollars more. Yeah. There's also a very good American Western, though, which I have seen on television and didn't quite appreciate the first time I saw it, although it stayed with me. Uh, it's a movie called Lonely Are the Brick. Yeah. And that is an amazing film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Great Western. A contemporary, but an absolutely brilliant Western. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Um, so, so what's next for you? Oh, um, last year, the American rights to a film called Repo Man. Uh, <laughs> screenplay sequels and remakes reverted to me. Oh, <laughs> great. So the, the, the interesting thing is I'm kind of in a trap because I have American rights, not far. Mm. Um. And normally when you raise a budget for a film, you kind of 50-50 American, 50-50 foreign, you know, and you can, you can, you can sell. And, and I don't have that. I only have America. Hmm. So what I have to do is figure out a way to make a U.S. distributed feature sequel hmm. to Repo set in the coronavirus pandemic. Wow, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing now, and that's what I'm working on now. That's great. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So with luck, you know, with luck, it won't cost too much. We can maybe even fundraise during the, the, the pandemic, and then as, as soon as we get let out, if we ever do get let out, you know, then, right. then we can jump in and make it. That's my hope. Yeah. That's great. That sounds amazing. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Boy, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a given thing, really. It's, no, it's very nice to, nice to talk to you. I'm glad you enjoyed the film. I hope that people get to see it. I mean, I know everything's so confused now because we didn't get a theatrical because all the theaters right. closed and so right. it went straight to DVD and then it's been the stream. So it's all a kind of a the distribution world is very, is very confused right now, but also. I see something very positive, which is a lot of art theaters, you know, which are all closed now, are doing deals with distributors where you can watch online and half the budget, half the cost, half the 12 bucks or whatever it is, mm-hmm. goes to the distributor, and the other half goes to the loft in Tucson or the guild in Albuquerque or mm. the IFS in Boulder, you know. And so right. I think that's really good because maybe somehow we're going to be able to you know, strengthen our bonds with independent art theaters and they'll survive even if the bigger chains, you know, have a much harder time. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot more yeah. people are watching movies and want to find the big things aren't even getting distributed now. So we have to look to the art cinemas and independent cinema. Yeah. And, and there's some really good, there's some really good films out there. There are. So there's a way of still seeing, obviously it's not the same to watch a film on your computer as it is to watch it in the sure. theater. But, right. By, by doing it, by splitting the revenue in this way, we can both help independent distributors and keep the exhibitors alive. Definitely. Yeah. Well, we'll try to spread the word we, as much as we can. We will, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for talking. No, thank yes, you. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much for, for talking to us today. So for me, this film, I think the 
the target audience that would like this film would be fans of the gunfight at the OK Corral story who know it well enough. Yes. But who are maybe looking for a more alternative perspective. Right. Yeah, I think it if, ha- if you're if you've seen uh, Tombstone a million times, but you want something new. This is where you should go. A different viewpoint on it, yeah. Mm -hmm. So thanks again to both Alex for talking to us and for giving us this film, Mm -hmm. as well as Tricoast Entertainment for connecting us and for giving us a copy of the film. Be sure to check it out. Again, it's on DVD now. It'll be out on VOD in July. So uh, check that out. That kind of wraps it up for this episode. Yeah, that's it. We'll see you uh, next time with another uh, classic Western or not so classic as uh, we uh, pick them out. That wraps up another episode of Film Frontier. So long from me, Felicity. And me, Clarence. And the spirit of Benito Stefanelli. Adios.